Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 7th, 2016. This is episode 1704 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Thursday, and we're back to our regularly scheduled programming after events and holidays and all of that stuff. So Thursdays, call in Thursdays, right? 866-65-THINK. Again, that number, 866-65-THINK. Now, this is a podcast, not a live radio show, so if you call in, you'll leave a message. So make sure you call from a quiet location, and maybe you'll hear yourself on next week's show. All of these calls you'll hear today have come in over the holidays in the past week. Before we get to those calls, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping you to make sure that the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it. From the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between, you'll find it at Ready-Made Resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can? or by the case, they've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it. Check. No problem. You want to start canning? Whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators? Got that, too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Alex Shrugged has three for us today. I have the building code in Vienna. 
or the first building code in Vienna. I have Isaac Newton discovers the rainbow spectrum. And I have off to the races, the first thoroughbred comes to England. Uh, let's read about Isaac Newton. He's a guy I always kind of liked. This year, Isaac Newton publishes works, his work entitled Optics, and it's spelled O-P-T-I-K-S, where he demonstrates using prisms that white light is actually composed of a range of colors. He counts seven distinct colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet, or Roy G. Biv. Uh, he calls it the spectrum and admits that he is surprised that white light is a mixture of so many colors. Certainly in painting, a mixture of such colors will not produce white. Thus, he concludes the attribute of color in the object is not inherent to the object, but the result of the perception of the eye as some colors white light are absorbed and by the object and other colors are reflected. This contradicts Aristotle's assumption, and just about every, everyone's assumption at the time, that light was pure white and color came about by mixing it with darkness and properties of matter that light fell upon. He also publishes this work in English rather than the normal Latin. This is a major step in the promotion of the English language and means, as a means of conveying serious scientific ideas. My take by Alex Shrug, Newton was right about light, but he was not right, right, he was not rigorous in terms of mathematically proving why light is composed of many colors. He was experimenting with light, demonstrating that whatever was happening with light was certain that Aristotle's explanation was absolutely wrong. That was enough to turn the scientific world on its head. In fact, the color process of absorption and reflection of light, one realizes this when one wears white clothing in the summer to reflect sunlight, thus pushing away the energy. Hold on a second, guys. Pushing away the energy contained in that sunlight. The white clothing is more reflective of the broad spectrum of light. Wearing black clothing absorbs light's energy. Thus, in colder months, one wears darker colors to absorb as much energy from the sun as possible, is absorbing all the colors of the spectrum. So, here's my take by this. This is actually the thing that I think is the most interesting thing here. Moving to the English language for his publishing of works may have, in fact, actually helped the English language itself become more of the scientific language, which today, English is the scientific language of the world. Um, but to me at the time, I don't think maybe that was really the goal. I think the goal was the spreading of knowledge beyond the, the highly, uh, educated because, you know, long ago we've now had the printing press, things go out in multiple copies, et cetera. Well, it, it, it's the case that the majority of people at the time could at least sort of fumble through their native language. But, you know, a lot of people didn't know how to read Latin unless you were a scholar. So I think his movement here, it starts to take knowledge out to the common man, if you want to look at it that way. And I think that's really important. Um, when you take things like complex ideas, add the printing press, and then go to the language of the commoner, you have the Internet of its day, my take, by Jack Spierko. Because even though it was a brilliant mind that realized this, it doesn't take a brilliant mind to comprehend it. And, and that, I think, is really important because we have a tendency to deify people who are scientifically minded or uh, scholastically minded, right? The, the high academics of the world. We, we kind of deify these people in our, our world today. And, and many of them that are actually worthy of some level of adoration uh, or adoration is the total wrong word. None of them are worthy of adoration. Worthy of being admired for their intellect is the word I'm looking for here. 
um, to actually come up with new ideas. But many of the people that we look at as so-called scientists or academics or highly educated today, all they're doing is repeating the work of others. See, it's the great minds that actually come up with the concepts because Isaac Newton wasn't cer first, certainly was not the first person to notice that white light had multiple colors in it. He was the first person to understand what that meant. If you've ever been anywhere where there's a mist of water and you've seen the sunlight come through it, you've seen this effect. Almost all of the people of the planet that lived anywhere where there was flowing water must have at some point or another seen this effect. It was comprehending it that was more important. And that's a lesson for us today. Because there's many things out there we're waiting for other people to discover that we could discover for ourselves if we would just observe, interact, and actually ask ourselves, what does this mean? That's what we should be teaching kids in school rather than how to parrot a bunch of crap that they'll never use again for the rest of their life, how to actually think. With that, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you want to help support the work I do, you can join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. That's all I'm going to say about that today. Let's go ahead and get into uh, the main stuff today. And I have some things that I want to start out with that are not your feedback, that are just some things I need to do for some housekeeping and things like that. First of all... Um, I would like to uh, put out an invitation for anybody out there that would be willing to consider coming and spending eight days at my property as a caretaker uh, to let me know that you'd want to do that. This would be a paid position. Um, we we haven't really solidified what we're going to pay, but I'm thinking like 75 bucks a day. Um, and you have, but you got to take care of everything here. The ducks, the quail, the dogs, and it's going to need to be somebody that can come stay here. If you're the kind of person that works from home or has your own business, you can work from home. We got full-on internet. You can have use of our network, my computer, whatever you need. Uh, but this has to be somebody that stays here. With the amount of, of what goes on in a day at this place, we need somebody that would actually be on site for those eight days, March 1 through 8. This would be so that Dorothy could go with me to Permaculture Voices and we could take a couple extra days at the end to, uh, to actually enjoy ourselves together as a couple. Because voices is work for us. Um, I, I'd really love to have somebody from this audience instead of going to like a, you know, a house sitting website or something like that that would like the experience of being here. And it would probably be best if you came the day before the first, at least pretty early in the day, so we could walk you through a whole day of what to do. Um, but I mean, if you look at it for 75 bucks a day, it's, it's about 600 bucks. So it's not a bad week's work. Um, because even though there's a lot to do, It's probably three to four hours of work a day, actual actual work, and the rest of it you just do whatever you want and keep an eye on things. So if anybody would be interested in that, email me with TSPC Farm Sitter in the subject line at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com and let me know. And otherwise, I'm going to have to go to PV uh, Permaculture Voices alone again without Dorothy. And she, I, I really love having her with me, and she's a big help as well. So let me know. If, uh, if you'd be interested in that. Next up, if you're not, you just can't come or whatever, are you going to go to Permaculture Voices 3? If you're not, let me tell you why you should. Um, last year, I, I saw Diego took something that, like, the first version of Voices was amazing. The second transformed it, and the third, I think, is becoming the fulfillment. What I saw in the first year was he probably spent way too much money to bring in the biggest names he could to get it off the ground by attracting people with names like Joel Salat and Jeff Lawton, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the second one, he pulled back a little bit, brought up some people that are kind of coming up in this world and people that are more into the this is how you do it mode. 
and, and this year he's actually paired the speakers back to only top quality educators. And so that's all fantastic. And I think that the education you would get is worth three times the ticket price. And, and I, I think the reason that he's even charging what he is is because he understands people also have to take time off work. They have to have travel. They have to have, you know, a hotel or whatever while they're there. So I think he's, he's made the, the price really worth it just for if you went there, you went to all the sessions that you wanted to go to and you left, it would be worth it. But that's, that's the, that's the least amount of value. It's the least amount of value. The networking contacts that I made were worth three times the ticket price last time I went. The ideas and things I was engaged in out there, the conversations that took place after hours were amazing. It was an incredible experience. And if you really just want to get a, a taste for it, just go back last year. To like the first two weeks of shows I did after I came back from Permaculture Voices in March of last year. And you listen to those shows and you hear the amped up energy and the ideas and the concepts and the excitement and the passion pour out of me that came from that. And you get to hang out and drink beer with me, which is always fun. So that's why you should come to PB3. Uh, next up, total different subject. Uh, I want to do a little follow-up from yesterday's show. Um, the guest we had on yesterday, I think, is fantastic for his knowledge. I do. Um, it was a big guest to get on TSP. This is a guy that's been around 30 years. Of course, I'm, I'm talking about Joel Skelson um, on strategic relocation. But there's something I have to say, and I kind of talked about it with him yesterday because I have people like really panicked now getting in touch with me because you know I don't run on fear here. I run on making your life better even if nothing goes wrong. And um, Joel, God bless him, has been selling the fear of nuclear war since the 1970s. Okay? I mean, that's just the truth. I'm not putting the guy down. It's just the truth. It's, it's, it's been the case since his first book came out in the 1970s that he has said the biggest danger to the people here is nuclear war, and it's going to happen sooner or later. And, you know, in the 70s, it was going to happen in five or ten years. In the 80s, it was going to happen in five or ten years. In the 90s, it was five or ten years. And now, it's five or ten years. Actually, it's almost 40 years, honestly, if you think about how long this guy's been bringing you that same thing. I'm not saying there's nothing to what he's saying. Everything he said factually up to the point of, I think we're going to just take a first strike, a nuclear hit from, from the Soviet Union or the, the Russians now and the Chinese. Um, all the facts leading up to that are accurate, and, and they're true, and they are concerning. However, I, I, I tried to bring this up with him, and he's too smart not to have gotten it, but he didn't want to get it, because in the end, the guy's selling something based on this one fear. And that was, he started out with the economy cannot go into complete collapse because there's so much money, the amount we'd have to print to cross hyperinflation is just unbelievable amount of money that we'd have to print. And the rest of the world can't afford for us to go into economic collapse because the inflation required to keep their economies working, if you drop the dollar, is is it would destroy them. They basically, we're the USS... Uh, Titanic, and they're they're like in lifeboats all tethered around us, and if we go down, they're coming too. And that's true. 
And that's why this economic collapse in the way that it's presented in sensationalistic literature is not very realistic. Depression, long-term, long-tail collapse, which I wanted to talk to him about yesterday, but we didn't get to because he was too into his own subject, I, I think are definitely probable. Um, so if... So his thing is the, the, the Chinese and the Russians are going to launch six fission warheads over the country and soften us up with an EMP that shuts down the grid and then hit military targets with nuclear weapons and then kind of stand back and go, okay, USA, get your shit in line. And then the globalists want that, and they're going to use it to unify NATO and the United States and create a global military government and then swing the Chinese on the Russians and bring them into it. That's his basic premise now. Um, the entire global economy is destroyed that day. Okay? It is. I'm sorry. It's destroyed that day. China's economy is gone if the U.S. I mean, it'd be one thing to say they might hit a strategic military target with a single weapon uh, or something like that, but they can't afford the U.S. to be shut down with an EMP. They can't do it. They're also reasonable people, and despite his talk of us disarming, This country could wipe the shit out of the major cities in China and Russia just as much as they could do to us. And the people that live there, they're reasonable people. They're not stupid. Um, am I saying there's no chance of nuclear exchange or that there's no chance there would ever be a nuclear detonation in our continent? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm saying the probability is not what was presented yesterday, in my opinion. And, and it's his opinion. In my opinion, you draw your own conclusions But I think that if you pull back to the wider macro lens of geo-international politics and ask yourself, who benefits from this? The answer is no one. No one. And if you're going to establish a military police state, uh, a global military police state, or at least a half-the-globe military police state, Europe and, Amer and the Americas, um, You can't have the United States electrical grid completely wiped out with an EMP. Because you'll spend decades just to get your shit back together, and at that point, you're done. So I, I don't think any of that makes sense. And I think that what this is is a person that's been carrying the same narrative for 40 years, trying to adapt it to a new reality. I think his advice on picking a place to live is great. I think his advice on how to... Set up a retreat is fine, but I think the probability that you're going to see a nuclear war in the United States in the next five years, I think you have a higher probability of winning the lottery, and I mean the pick six where you become a millionaire. That's just my opinion. With that, let's go ahead and take our first call of the day. Hey, Jack Karim from Texas calling here. Um, just wanted to make a quick comment on your show. Um, I was at the grocery store the other day and heard two girls in their 20s discussing a job opening for a receptionist, and one of the comments that kind of caught my attention and perked up my ears was, the job role required a person with a degree that had a psychology major. Um, so while we were waiting for checkout, I kind of just casually asked, isn't that a little bit overkill for a receptionist? And one of them said to me, well, What other jobs are there for us, or someone who has a psych major and mentioned that she had just graduated? I kind of was just left scratching my head like, why exactly would you get a college degree not knowing what kind of jobs are available to you after you get the degree? 
Anyway, I just thought that was an interesting observation. Thanks for the show. Talk to you soon. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I think what is actually more center on target for me here is what I've been trying to tell people about college degrees over the years that people with degrees often get angry at me for. And that is that while the, the cost of a degree has been exponentially pushed up uh, over the last 30 years, the value of a degree in of itself, just a degree, I have a bachelor's degree in pick something, psych, whatever, has gone exponentially down to the point where it's in such surplus that there are employers that when they put out a job posting will put that the job requires a bachelor's in something. Um, just because there's so many people out there with a degree, why not get one of those? And, and that's the truth. I mean, there's no need at all for a receptionist in a company to have a degree in psychology. I mean, that is one of the most preposterous things that anybody could ever say, ever, unless. I'm going to take unless, I'm going to set it on the shelf for a second, okay? And I'll come back to that in a second. Because a, a receptionist can be trained in her basic duties or his basic duties in less than a week. And if they're ever going to be able to be a good receptionist, they're going to be able to do it in one week flat. If they can speak, they can write, And they can communicate at like a 10th grade level, okay? And if they're trainable and personable and, and can take direction, that's all they're ever going to need to do that job, okay? So it's preposterous. Now let's take unless off the shelf. Actually, one of the sectors that people with psych degrees are generally able to break into within larger companies, and when I say larger companies, I mean a couple hundred people or more, is human resources. And many companies that have human resources departments and other positions like that will often see receptionist in that company as an entry-level position that can lead to other opportunities because I get you in the door, I hire you for a song, I teach you how to do a job a moron could do. If you can't pull that off, please let me fire you and not waste my time with you. If you work out well as opportunities arise, we can discuss moving you into them. Okay? So, in that case, if that magic, you know, star aligns, that psych degree may help that person get into a company with upward mobility within the company. It's still quite limited, but it is what it is. As for what other jobs are available for somebody with a psych degree, um, generally a lot of times there's research opportunities uh, for people with psych degrees, uh, casework and counseling, uh, whether it's with children, whether it's with adults. Um, now, to become like a licensed counselor or whatever, there's additional requirements generally. But there's a lot of jobs where the person's doing the job of being like, um, a, a counselor, but they're not in a practice as a counselor. So if you look at like a caseworker for a nonprofit, that's what they're doing. And a lot of times there's opportunities there, but they don't pay very much. You know, you're talking jobs that pay somewhere between $25,000 and, and, you know, $25, up to maybe forty five at the top end. And a lot of them that are paying, you know, $20,000 or less for like people to start out. Um, I mean, you're talking about like working as a caseworker for like Salvation Army or something like that. 
does that mean a psych degree is worthless? It's not. It's it's not the education's not the degree is pretty much worthless paper at this point, other than it's becoming you know, the college degree of today is becoming the high school diploma of 1980. Like there's jobs that you just have to have it to get it, even though it doesn't matter, right? Because it's like, well, you didn't do that. Well, if you didn't do that, then you're not good good enough like the rest of us. Um, but the education of a psych degree or a philosophy degree or something like that. The actual education can be had for nothing. That's why I don't see getting the degree. But learning how the mind works and how to think and how to interact with others, certainly for somebody that's entrepreneurial, can be extremely valuable. Um, it, it is actually a great field of study, though I would go to the, the least expensive school possible if you were going to take this. But if you went with something like a psych major and a business minor, it would be very good for somebody that wants to be in professional sales. Um, it would definitely tick the box of having a degree to get into the entry-level sales position and over time learning your trade as a salesperson or a marketing person, that baseline could be pulled up. But the education system is on its last legs, guys. That's what this tells you. When you have a company requiring a degree to hire a receptionist, unless that little thing we put on the shelf is there, and it's probably not, it's exactly what I've said before. When I was still in you know, conventional business, I was involved in like six different chamber of commerce, uh, Frisco, uh, Richardson, Plano, etc. I was on the Technology Business Council for the Richard, uh, Richardson Chamber of Com Commerce and, and a bunch of other stuff. And I would go to all these meetings and rub elbows and noses and kiss asses with people and help establish relationships for my companies with other companies. And I would talk to people that owned companies employing 50, 100, 200, 300 people, CEOs. They were saying, you know, we're, you know, cause we did technical recruiting. Uh, we're hiring, uh, five customer service reps next week. Uh, okay, that's really not what we do, but that's nice to know. Tell me what you're looking for. Because if you're smart when you're in a networking situation, you always say, okay, I can't get that for you, but maybe I know someone that can help you, right? So they tell you, and they're like, yeah, we want them all to have a degree. I'm like, what kind of degree? It doesn't matter. They just need a bachelor's degree. For customer service? Yeah. I mean, you know about people that answer the phone and basically do tech support, right? And uh, I'm like, I remember asking the one guy. I said, why the hell would you want that person to have a degree? He goes, degrees are cheap. I'm like, what? He goes, getting a person with a degree now is cheap. You can get them for the same price as somebody without a degree. Why not have that? At least I know they'll show up and finish what they started. I, I, this was my response. What? What is wrong with you? But I had to admit he had a point. And I said, well, what does this position pay? $28.5 a year. $28.5 a year starting salary. You got people that have eighty, ninety, a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars invested in a degree to get a job to pay under thirty grand a year. I'm just saying, think hard before you invest your money in a college uh, degree. I'm not saying there's no value possible. I'm saying you better know what you're doing going in. And apparently, this young lady did not. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack Richard in Wisconsin. I have an interesting thought experiment for you regarding getting divorced for tax purposes. Now, I'm not talking about the sacred nature of marriage, which I do believe it is. We're talking about the civil side of it, the government side, which I do not believe has anything to do with the sacred aspects of a committed relationship. My question is, is that since we have talked, or you have talked about it before, where the government actually 
makes it cost you money to actually get married compared to if you just were technically not married but living together with kids and everything like that, filing separately. Would it also not be a, a, a form of protest, I guess, against the government's use of, of marriage as a tool uh, and just getting divorced uh, civilly but not uh, through whatever faith that you may have, taking advantage of those tax breaks? And would that actually be financially viable, uh, smart move? I know that there's issues uh, as far as for who can visit you in hospitals and all that kind of stuff, but I imagine that there could be other legal avenues for you that you could set up, probably more work, a little bit extra money on the side, but I imagine that you could, through enough time and paperwork and money, you could probably set that up as well where you would not have to worry about that. I was just wondering, I know it varies state, state by state, but what your thoughts were on that? I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. On, on some levels there, you're teetering into what's known as the Cloward-Piven strategy. Uh, Glenn Beck fans will know all about that, uh, but Cloward-Piven for everybody else, uh, including myself, <laughs> is a political strategy outlined in 1966 by American sociologists and political activists Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven that called for overloading the U.S. public welfare system in order to precipitate a crisis that would lead to the replacement of welfare with a national system of guaranteed annual income and thus end poverty. Because we can just end poverty by printing money like jelly beans out of the woods and giving the money to people. Um, on the other hand, it's not untrue that if you have enough people in this country inside the welfare system taking and not producing that you could eventually cripple the beast. But I, I don't think you could ever completely bring it down because a lot of these programs, you know, they, they, they were advertising for people to take food stamps just a couple years ago. I heard it on the radio. Did you know you might qualify for food stamps? But I have a job. It doesn't matter. You know, I mean, like, the ads actually were like that. Like, they were selling car insurance. And it was your government spending your money to tell people that aren't getting money that they could get. So, like, they, they, could, they have moments like that. But when they, when they have crisis, they have no problem going into some levels of austerity and controlling who gets in and who doesn't, cutting benefits and what have you. So I, I don't know that that's the case. Um, I, I don't know that I see it as the precipitous or the reasoning behind um, doing a stateless marriage. Though, again, I... <laughs> I can't sanction, I can't say, like, you should just do all these things you can to put money back in your pocket. But in the end, when someone does it, I understand why. When two people don't get married because the woman qualifies for Obamacare or some other level of, like, state Medicaid or whatever, and, and it immediately saves them $800, $900, dollars a month, especially if they have a couple kids, I understand why they do it. And none of us wanted this damn thing that, that's caused all this expense now, especially. Um, but I'm not totally sold on saying stateless marriage is the way to go, either. I think ethically and morally it is. But, I, I, again, I'm going to have to get somebody that's a legal expert to know how to like dot all the I's and cross all the T's. There's things here like, let's say, uh, Dorothy and I are married, and I'm the primary breadwinner in the home. And I am. Almost all the income that comes in the household is mine. I have life insurance, sure, but if I die right now as my spouse, there's Social Security survivor benefits that may transfer to her. Okay, um, and like so, if you're not married to the by the state, you that doesn't happen. Now, 
I, I know most people say, well, if you have life insurance, it doesn't matter, whatever. But no, the, the point is that I've had that money extracted from my income since I was freaking, I guess, I guess I was paying Social Security when I first had my first job at 14. But let's say in earnest since I was 17 when I joined the Army and had a regular paycheck. Okay, So since I was 17 years old, these pricks have been taking this money in the name of providing for me. And my family, right? It's social services. And as far as I'm concerned, if the program set up and it was like we're taking the money whether you want it or not, but here's a contract that goes with it, you know, then then whatever. And it's not always that a, a spouse can get survivor benefits, but in many instances they can. There's like there's like two million widows and widowers right now in the country that are getting some form of survivor benefits and children too. Um, When 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 Matthew's birth father died, there was a survivor benefit that was paid to Matthew until until Matthew was 18. I don't think a stateless marriage would have changed that, and, and they were divorced at that point. But I mean, these are things like you have to answer these questions. I don't think you can just go willy nilly into the world of well, we're just going to be married, but not by the state. I think that's a fine decision. I wholly endorse it. But I think all decisions of that magnitude need to be fully informed. And the truth is, because when I was, you know, when I got married in uh, two, I think Dorothy and I've been together 20 years now, but we got married in 2000. Um, 16 years, wow. Um, <laughs> when I got married back then, I wasn't an anarchist, right? I was a, I was a, a libertarian leaning Republican. I, it never even entered my mind. Right, that like I always had a problem with with marriage by the state anyway. There was a a thing that bothered me there, but it wasn't quite what it is today. It was more along the lines of I don't need you to tell me this, I don't need you to recognize this. But I understood the legal implications, and it made sense to me. So you know, we took that step together as a couple, and and then you know, parts of me say today we would have been better off if we just would have had our own covenant ceremony. And lived together and, and commingled accounts and did everything and set up everything with the wills and life insurance and whatever. But the other side of it is there are things that I still do not know about this issue. And, and I, I, if anybody knows anybody like specializes in this or really researches it deeply, please put them in touch with me. Tell them to go to the site, fill out a guest form. I, I think this would be a fascinating subject to explore uh, because I don't think the state needs to be in marriage. But the state has dictated that certain there's certain conditions that come with and don't come with marriage, and vice versa. And, and some of those conditions involve significant amounts of money that's been taken from you that could be seen as no longer valid as going forward to a survivor. That's just one instance. There's a lot of other instances uh, like that out there. So let's go ahead and uh, take another one. That's all I can do on that for now. Jack, how are you doing? I hope you had a fantastic uh, vacation. Uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Um, I, my question relates to hunting. Uh, I've never been hunting, and my question is how to uh, get started in hunting. Um, now, the background. I've listened to your shows in the past about hunting. You've got some great advice there. Um, some, some details are that uh, I cannot use the gun. Uh, I was convicted of a felony 15 years ago or so. 
uh, Texas law states that I can have a gun, so I'm good with uh, self-defense in the house. I own, you know, a, a battery there. But um, I cannot go out and hunt uh, and use a gun. So I just purchased a bow. Um, I've never shot a bow before in my life, so uh, I was thinking about uh, getting used to that now, uh, this time of year, and practicing with it throughout the year so that I'll be ready next season. Um, I live in the Houston area, um, and there's national forests within, you know, an hour or so of me. I don't know if that would be a good place to start. I really can't afford a lease or anything like that. So uh, that's the comment on that. I am allowed to use uh, black powder, so I was also thinking of maybe getting a uh, black powder rifle as well as the arrow, uh, as well as the bow. Anyway, uh, I appreciate uh, your show. Oh, and one last thing. Um, you had uh, taken my question about the perky water filter. You did a nice job answering that in the past. And uh, I did get in contact with the perky guy, and uh, he answered all of my questions, gave me top-notch customer service, actually took my order a week before he was putting a sale on and gave me the sale price. So that was fantastic. So, Jack, I appreciate you and the show, and I'm looking forward to your answer. Thank you. Okay, and th this this fellow also called uh, a second call right, right after that and kind of uh, reiterated that he's he's really concerned about, like, not just how to use a bow or a black powder weapon, but how to actually uh, scout and, and do things like that so that he'll know, you know, where to hunt. Um, I can't really speak to how good the hunting opportunities are uh, in the, the, the public hunting areas uh, just north of Houston. It, it's something that's been on my radar to get down and check out, but I, I just never have. Um, so... The, the, the general problem with public hunting is that there's usually a hell of a lot more people around than there, there are on leased lands or guided hunts, especially in states like Texas where everybody and their brother is out looking for a deer lease and they're so expensive. Um, that really pushes a, a lot more pressure on, on public hunting grounds. When I was a kid in Pennsylvania... One of the primary reasons I became an archer is I might go out in archery season, even on public in public hunting areas, and might see one or two other people in a day, maybe. Uh, sometimes I would see no one, and a lot of times there was few enough people that if there was like a guy in that area, I could just not hunt that area and leave him on his stand alone or whatever, and vice versa. So. If you hunt in archery season, which isn't that long in Texas, where it's just archery, you, you can get that advantage. Um, So that's probably the best time to hunt public lands. Uh, as far as, you know, patterning and tracking deer, if you're that close, you can probably get up there every other weekend at least and just take walks and learn the areas. And, you know, I could end up with a whole show on hunting, so I, I can't do that in this type of thing. But what I can tell you is look to things like, bedding areas and feeding areas and realize that those change throughout the seasons and go back and listen to the show that I did on scouting. I think because that's what the, the crux of this question really is. The, the limitation of the weapon is in, irrelevant to how do I find a deer so I can shoot it, right? So it's really about scouting. So I would go through my bow hunting show on scouting and I'll see if I can look that up for you today and put that in the show notes for you. 
uh, to, to link off to and re-listen to that because I think I covered it as good as I can in there. I would also say if you can find others in the area that hunt those areas, uh, especially bow hunters or black powder hunters, and kind of talk to them about, you know, the rope, so to speak. If you can find a hunting mentor, it's the best thing you can do. It, it really is. It's, it's the best thing you can do is to find someone local to you and, and try to not just make it about hunting. Go to the range together. Go drink a beer together or whatever, you know. Just a friend that hunts. Uh, but, you know, with kind of also, you know, I, I'm, I'm new to this type of thing. Um, I would say with the black powder thing, I would not limit myself to black powder season. Uh, there are some fantastic inline muzzleloaders out there that you are in no disadvantage, especially, you know, the Houston area. It's not like where I hunt out like in Kerrville and stuff like that, where you could see three, four hundred yards easy everywhere. Uh, there might be clumps of brush and stuff that obstruct it, but there's, you get shots like that. Um, you're talking about the pine forest there. You're not going to be shooting 200 yards, uh, unless you got like a, a cleared laneway or something like that. Uh, the, the inline muzzleloaders of today are, you know, a 306 quality out to 200 yards as far as trajectory and capability. So I, I'd really look into that as an alternative. I wasn't aware that under Texas law, a felon prohibited from having a firearm uh, outside of the home uh, would be allowed to carry black powder, uh, and I'm not sure of that. So you might want to recheck that to be sure, but if that's the case, it opens up a lot because there's a lot of really great black powder weapons out there. And and I would say, you know, if, if you want to, you know, get an old flintlock or something like that, that's fine. But since you're at this disadvantage, find the best rifle for your needs as though you're trying to replace a center fire bolt gun. And, and that would be great. And I, I want to say something here at the end of this, too. This is one of my problems that I have with the U.S. legal system, where a person once convicted of a felony can never have you know, a firearm uh, for purposes like hunting ever again. I, I think there's crimes... Where, where that makes sense, right? I mean, if, if somebody, you know, it, 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 let's say the crime was attempted murder and they just weren't a very good shot and they shot five people, I, I don't think that guy needs a gun, right? Uh, but m we have a ton of people with felony convictions that have actually never done anything you would consider violent. They've never actually harmed a person physically. They've never used a weapon on somebody. And to me, if nothing else, when that person's completed their term and then completed any kind of probation, parole, whatever goes with it, I guess it would be parole, uh, or sometimes it's like you've served your sentence and there's a probation after, I guess. But once you're done and you've stayed clean, I, I think that should go away. I, I think that restriction should go away at that point. Because that person's... The person that actually gets that far is probably less likely to commit a crime than someone who never has. Because the recidivism rate for people that come out of prison systems with felonies is through the roof. People that actually make it to the other end, they don't want to go back. And I think there's, that's another topic to itself, but I think there's a reason the recidivism so high, and it's not just because they're crappy people. I think that a person that gets out of prison after six years, seven years, ten years, uh, that committed a felony, when they go to try to find a legitimate job and they really do want to turn their life around, it's hard. 
I mean, if you think it's hard to find a job because you don't have the right degree, imagine when that stigma on your back. And, and I've, I've known people with that that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be a busboy. You know, the jobs that are available right now, they can't get. You know, I'll do anything. Because what they think is if I get a job and I keep that for a few months, then when I go somewhere it's a little bit better and they say, what are you doing now? I have a job. It's not like the last thing I did was I worked, you know, uh, building uh, wood frames in a prison uh, workshop, right? Um, and I think there's an opportunity there more and more with, with you know, uh, local agriculture and, and small-scale production because the one nice thing about that is if you can get any kind of a start, you don't need anybody to hire you. You just need the opportunity to get it done. So anyway, sorry about that, but that's the best I can do for you on that one. Um, again, listen to my show on scouting. So I have a few comments, but for tonight, this is Elisa in Indiana, and I just killed a dog. I know that sounds horrible, and I felt really bad. I still feel bad because I'm hearing the other one making noises that the neighbor's not letting in up the road. Um, in the past two weeks, I've actually found two dead chickens that were in chicken tractors of various types and sizes after we came back from living on our new property in the fall. And now, this morning, I found two injured ducks that were almost dead, not standing up in their tractor. One of them would not stand up at all. The other one was very despondent as well. Bathed them down, got them warm. They're okay. They're just lost a lot of feathers and have a couple of scratches. Now, I paid a lot more attention tonight, and I heard them. I heard them screaming, the birds screaming. I only have one large tractor left of birds now, and I went out with the 22, and our spotlight stopped working, so a little flashlight, shine a light down the hill, dog's eyes, looked at me. Next thing I know, it's come up behind me, between me and my gate to my fenced yard, and and then it starts walking towards me even more. All I can see is a flashlight, so, of course, I aim for its chest, and I drop it. It squeals, and there turns out there's another dog. Comes up behind it. This dog is not coming at me, but it's not running away from me, and so I decide I'm going to aim for its back end, and maybe it'll never come back. I know that's weakness, but I've never had to shoot while I was in fear before. I've hunted squirrels. I've had... I, I anything with fur usually gets a bullet with me, whether it's my, you know, male goats I'm butchering or even rabbits get a bullet because their necks are just too thick. But damn it, that was one of the scariest things in my life because holding a gun makes me be on edge, like ready to go. And then a dog comes at me and it was a pit bull. And knowing that I had nowhere to go, at all, like I could fall down a steep embankment off my patio or shoot it. Those are the only directions I had. And after that, it's after the other dog ran off, the second one, the first one that actually came at me, stumbled a few paces and fell down at the end of my driveway. And I uh, got advice from my mom to let the sheriff know in case somebody made a big deal about it. The sheriff wanted basically me to press charges against people who own the dog. I said, no, I just want to make sure I'm not in trouble for being defensive. Um, they reassured me, Indiana is actually really great if you're not in the city. Like, they kept telling me, no, you did good, honey, you know, 
you have to defend your livestock, everything else. Um, but I took pictures where it was so close to my truck, you can see the license plate of my truck, even with the little dim, crappy pocket light, um, before I drug it off in the woods. And I took pictures of the injured birds before I, um, I used the nation or genitin, however you want to call it, violet on them. Uh, I took pictures of their injuries just in case because these are, I'm pretty sure these same stupid people who have kids and my daughter went over to see them to invite them to her birthday party that day and their dog lunged out and bit her. It didn't break the skin. She didn't want to make a big deal out of it, so I didn't. But looks like one of their dogs is gone. People, if you have a dog that growls at other people, I don't mean like, I mean growls at other people. When you have a dog that gets super excited about squirrels, even if you're in the country, unless you're 20 miles from somebody, you can't let it loose. That's why I want to let people know. I have lost almost three dozen birds since I've lived here to dogs, and I know that. That doesn't count the ones I'm not sure about. And I have a dog that will keep away everything but dogs. She just doesn't understand. So I'd like to get the message out there. Don't let your dog out loose unless you know what kind of dog you have. Thank you. I love listening to the show. I've had a very stressful night. I hope everyone else has a good Christmas. Um, I don't have a huge amount to add to that. I, I played that mainly because I felt like that call was from someone that um, was in a tough situation and felt like they needed to be heard. Uh, a person that probably still regrets having to kill an animal that they really didn't want to kill. I don't think anybody really wants to kill a dog. Um, anybody that's not, you know, I don't think, I think you're sick if you just want to kill dogs. Okay, let me put it to you that way. But you've got a situation where not only could the animal be dangerous, it's actually it's harming your animals. It's on your property, and it's a chronic problem that's going to keep returning. And I understand when people get to that point. Um, the only time I've ever had a situation with a person with a dog like this, I really didn't want to shoot the dog, and I ended up not shooting the dog. But I made it very clear to the owner that if you don't do something about this problem, I'm going to shoot your dog. And by the way, there's nothing you can do about it other than not let it happen. And I think the advice there at the end of like, please don't let this happen. A, a dog is a responsibility, okay? A dog can do damage to other people's property. It can hurt children, etc. But I also think we as homesteaders need to use some restraint. I'm not saying it wasn't done here, but I also do know the kind of person, if I see a dog on my property, I don't know, I'm going to shoot it. And I remember one guy said that to me, and I said, if I see you do that for some dog that ain't doing nothing, I will beat your ass. And he's like, what? I'm like, it's probably some kid's dog that ran away, you dumbass. And, and this was a, a kind of a friend of the family, too, from my old school days. And uh, it, you know, he kind of backed off it a little bit, but that was his attitude. Like, if I ever see a dog on my property, and this was a... Part of Pennsylvania where nobody has a fence and dogs get away occasionally. I'm like, you're an idiot. You'd have some kid crying because you shot their dog. Now, this is not that situation. So I think there's going to be a balance on both sides. I almost think that 
in this instance, possibly pressing a charge might have been a good idea. You could have dropped it just to make clear, like, don't do this again. But, you know, having one dog wounded and the other dog dead might make that point to these people. But the problem is most people that, that, that don't maintain their dogs properly, it's because they don't give a shit. They don't care. It, it probably won't matter. And I got to say something here. If there's anything you did wrong, and I, I can't judge you being in that situation, I don't know exactly what I would have done. You can't treat a .22 like a pellet gun. You can't shoot a dog in the back end and hope it won't come back. It's very possibly that dog's mortally wounded. I, I, I don't want to add to the sorrow here, but it's just the truth. Um, a bullet is dangerous, okay? And, and if you're going to shoot something, you either shoot it to kill it or you don't shoot it. You know, I mean, really. Um, so I'm not faulting you for that because, again, I don't know. But what I wanted to comment real quick on here before I finish up on it is there is something to having to use a gun when you're actually in a state of fear that's different. And I've had it a couple times in my life, and the most recent one was with the coyote that we cornered in the duck house because when I went in there, she came right at me. And it, it was one of those things where it's a it's it, it's a, a fraction of a second between the lunge and the shot, and you don't get a full second. Um, you're talking about an animal that was cornered in this case. In this case, you got a dog that's aggressive, doesn't have an inherent fear of humans. I had an animal that had issues with, with mange. It was going kind of nuts and was cornered, and, and I was blocking its exit. It's the only way out. And there is an amped up thing, and... I almost wish that we could take every person that carries or keeps a weapon for defense and somehow simulate that condition for them. Because I think if it if you go through it and you get through it, you'll be able to do it better than the next time if next time ever occurs. And in certain situations where we might need to use a weapon to protect ourselves, our lives, the lives of others, a second of hesitation is the difference between life and death. And it's a very difficult thing to know when to shoot and when not to shoot. And it's never going to be a perfect system. And nobody's ever going to be perfect at it. But there are times when the threat is clear. And in that instance, the mind and the body need to flow as a single unit. And the, the shot not only needs to be taken, but made. And it needs to be made where it matters. Like, my only concern for you is a .22. Um, Pitbull's a big dog. And it was it's very possible if a dog really wants to, if these dogs really had come after you, um, that they could have gotten to you even hit multiple times. Uh, and that said, I shot this coyote with a .22. Of course, he got 10 in about two seconds. So that kind of added up, right? Two .22s or a .44. Um, anyway, um, I feel for you. And if you have dogs and you let them roam, this is the cause. This is what, what can eventually happen or worse. Or worse. I'm just saying. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Matt from Massachusetts. I was wondering if you could talk about some things that are easily overlooked when moving a family over 800 miles away. Uh, backstory. Um, finally, walking the freedom. I put in a work transfer a while back to move my family from Massachusetts to North Carolina. And it finally went through, and we're moving at the end of January. Um, I know you've made a lot of big moves a few times, 
So I'd like to hear some tips based off your experience. I have a wife, three kids, four cats, and two dogs making this trip. So any uh, info you have would be awesome. Thanks for everything, Jack. You've helped bring me to this point, and I appreciate it a lot. Bye. <sighs> three kids, two dogs, and four cats. Ugh. 800 miles. Um, 800 miles is a single day drive. Probably not a problem for a single man unencumbered by the female bladder, whining kids and dogs and cats. I don't know if you'll make a single day drive out of this. I, I really don't. I mean, it's, it's pushing it. So you might have to think about finding a point somewhere along the way where you can find a hotel that has a place that will allow you in with those animals. And that's something that we did when we moved a couple times because we didn't have much of a choice. And I'll be bluntly honest, we sort of lied. We had two dogs and two cats, and we told them about the dogs, and we didn't tell them about the cats, and we snuck the cats in. We gave the cats a litter box. We took care of everything. We didn't let anything go wrong. But it was a challenge just to find a place that would allow dogs. So that that you, you may need that as nothing else but a backup. And at 800 miles, somewhere around a 500-mile mark, You may just be ready to say surrender for a day, okay? So that, that would be a big one. Underestimating how much work it's going to be to load a moving truck. Unless you have movers doing it for you, it's really easy to do, or how much space you'll need on a moving truck or on a truck that somebody moves for you. I will tell you that the best investments we've ever made with our big moves is where you get them to drop off a box and you load it up, And then they come pick the box up and take it to your new house. That's That's been really worked well for us. And renting something like a small U-Haul trailer one way to take the stuff that when you get there you're going to need. Because whenever you do what I just said, that truck never shows up the day you get there. It's a couple days later. So like you're kind of like camping in your new house. All right. So that's that's another way to look at this. If I could, in your situation, cats are pretty self-sufficient. I'm imagining they're probably, if you have four cats, they're probably indoor cats, okay? Um, I would hope they are, you know, in this situation. Because what I would do is if I could take a load of shit to the new house with the cats, get the cats there, give them a litter box and a great big hopper feeder where they're good for a week until I make the next run, I'd take those dadgone cats without the dogs, without the kids, possibly without the wife, and I would take them there and I'd dump them off and I'd put them on self-sufficient mode and maybe talk to a neighbor to come in and clean the litter box once every couple of days or something, pay pay somebody to do it, find a, cat, a pet sitting service or something. I, I think that the, the – the, and maybe that's – see, that's another – this is the way we've done this too – I've gone on pre, pre-moving trips. So I'll take a vehicle, U-Haul trailer, and take a whole bunch of stuff, drop it off in the house, dump the U-Haul trailer, leave the car, jump on a one-way plane cheap, and come home. That's how we did the Pennsylvania move. That way we had a single vehicle when all of us went. And then we had the moving pod truck take care of everything else. These are different things to think about. I mean, overlook, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 here's the deal. Moving sucks. Moving sucks. After my last move, I felt like if I ever have to move again, if I can't sell it or give it away, I'm going to burn it and buy new when I get there. I mean, I am not really going to do that, but I feel that way. 
Um, one person said they, that when I talked about moving from Arkansas, they saw in the in the little blurb I put out prepper and moving in a single sentence and, and almost threw up thinking about it. Because what we had done is we had that as a standalone house in Arkansas at, for a bug-out location, and then we moved our stuff from Texas to Arkansas and doubled up on a lot of things. And we had no idea how much we had. So that's that's another consideration. How much do you really have to do? Uh, you'll find out who your friends are. All the people that say they're going to miss you, the ones that are going to miss you are going to show up and help you load a truck. They'll probably be two or less. Um, when you move, you find out who your friends really are. People that show up to help you move, they're your friends. They really care about you. Uh, and it, the, you know, when you're moving long distance, the other side of that is you probably don't have a lot of friends there yet. So, you know, there are a lot of places, like a lot of times that you, where you can rent a U-Haul, rider truck, stuff like that. They'll have services where you can get like basically muscle. You know, you can get two or three guys for fifteen dollars an hour for three or four hours uh, to come help you, and uh, it's really helpful with unloading. Uh, loading, you want to be fussy. You want to make sure everything's just right. Unloading, you just kind of take it out and put it in that room. And uh, unloading goes a lot faster, and it's a lot easier than loading. Uh, so, since you usually can get some help on on the on the the, the leeward side of the move, let's say on, on the destination side, you you might have to hire that help. But if you think about it, hiring three guys for fifteen dollars an hour a piece day labor type guys from, you know, U-Haul or whatever. And usually those are not pick up on the side of the road types. Those are people that, you know, are contractors that work for U-Haul. Uh, or the service that does the U-Haul rentals or whatever. Uh, you're up 45 bucks. Two of them are 90 bucks. You know, uh, three of them are, what, 135 bucks. The amount of work they do is totally worth it. You'll probably tip them, you know, a 12-pack of beer piece on top of it and be happy. Uh, we've done that too. Um... Time of year, I've always hated to move my kid in the school year. I've never had to. Uh, my son has always started and finished the same school in spite of all the moves. If there's any way you can do that, it's, it's much easier on kids. Uh, if they're young enough, it doesn't really matter. But as they get into like the where they really have the peer groups and stuff, I'm talking like third and fourth grade on up, it starts to get more difficult. I had to do it as a kid a couple times. It's not terrible, but... Especially as you get into like the sixth, seventh grade level, going from one school to another, the work is a little bit more advanced. You don't just drop back in and 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 be where that new history teacher is, right? So it's not just the social thing. So if you can do that, that's that's great. Um, it doesn't sound like you can if you're the move is this imminent, but that's that's always advantageous. Preparing your family for the reality, like this is going to suck in some ways, but we're going to make the most of it and we're going to still have fun. Um, making sure that you have everything you need to service your animals. Uh, get two leashes for each dog. Get a backup collar for each dog. Um, I, I really actually suggest with your dogs, unless these are like little tiny like chihuahua dogs or something, that you get a good um, pincher choke chain for your dogs. So that when you're walking them at a rest stop or something, something freaks them out, they can't slip a collar and get away. Um, I don't really use those as training tools. Uh, I've not really ever had to. But with that type of, you know, I'm walking my dog on the side of the highway or something, a truck comes by and scares it. I mean, those are not inhumane at all. Um, make sure they're sized right and what have you. But that way if the dog tries to slip its collar, it can't. 
and, and, and it, you know, it might be a minute of discomfort versus, you know, something tragic happening to your animal like we just heard about. Um, that's it, man. It, it, it sucks, but it's worth it. Uh, that's a little bit of a words of encouragement there. Anybody with any thoughts on that comment in today's show notes? Hi, Jack. This is Jerry in Southeast Michigan. I have a question for you about starting a mint patch. I'm wondering if it would be uh, advantageous to start the mint now in pots indoors in December and let it grow through the uh, winter and then uh, put it outside in the spring. I do have uh, 10 acres, so my method of control is a lawnmower, so I'm not worried about it uh, getting too aggressive. I'd like to really kind of get a jump start and get the larger production going. Thanks. Bye. I, I wouldn't do it just yet. Um, you can. Here's the issue. So you take a whole bunch of mint cuttings, stick them in some moist soil, they pretty much root and start going. Uh, it's, it's easy and it's pretty fast. And that means that it's not really that necessary to be taking care of these things for three or four months to where they're really substantial plants at that point unless you have a proper setup to do it, which I'll get to in just a second. So I wouldn't really do it. I, I've done a lot of mint cuttings. And generally, even a very small cutting, if it's if well cared for, so it needs to be shady, a little bit of sun, moist but not too wet, decent soil, good well-drained potting soil, it's blowing and going in four weeks. I mean, it, it, it it's not like rooting like a softwood cutting of a bush or something like that, where at four weeks it's got little rootlets on it, but it's, it's fragile. It's not just rooted. It's growing. It's It's got new sprouts coming up. The pot's full of, of root. Um, usually at four weeks in a pot, if you put in like four sprigs of mint, you can rip it into four or five plugs and have four or five starts. Um, if you have cool, moist soil and like dappled shade or part shade, so it's not beaten with the sun, mint something that you can pretty much cut a piece off, strip the leaves off, poke a hole in the ground with a stick, stick the mint in, pack the dirt around it, and it's good. So if I'm going to take care of plants like mint that I'm going to put out when it's the right time of year to do it, which honestly you could you could plant a well-rooted mint plant right now. It, it's going to freeze the ground, but it's just going to come back in, in, the, in, the, in the spring anyway. So the only problem with planting them now is they're not rooted yet, right? So and it's not going to be a good time to plant anything else until your spring when you get kind of past your danger of last heavy frosting mint will take a, a light frost they don't take freezes uh very well generally so i would kind of figure out well what what are the what is the date that i want to start planting these things and i would go no more back than 30 days from there now let's talk about your your needs of the setup mint needs sun Most windows in our houses today do not let the light through that plants need. That's why they don't do very well in front of a sunny window. Uh, some of them will do okay, ficuses and stuff like that that are tropicals that really get filtered sunlight anyway in their native habitat. But, you know, mint needs some good UV rays. So unless you're going to be like on days it's not freezing, setting them outside, or you've got a light set up or something like that, that's something you're going to have to deal with. Now, during the rooting process... The, the little bit of sun through a window, like even indirect sun through a window, is all it needs. But once it gets up and starts growing, it's going to want more so it can start, because it's going to, mint will blow you away with how fast it grows. So I would think more like that 30 day from planting number, 45 at most, unless you like, if you have a whole 
you know, beautiful plant rack with UV lighting and all, and you're ready to go, and you're not going to be needing it for tomatoes or peppers or whatever, then, then go nuts with it. Now, let's talk about propagating it once you get it out and how much you could do in a single season with a patch. You probably, no matter how many plants you end up with, end up with a pretty small thing, and it'll start crawling and whatever. But if every once in a while, you, you like, if you've got good soil where you can dig it up, it's not like hard-packed stuff, which is what you should have. Uh, you, you, you dig up, and you can just tear clumps with roots, and then just spread those out, and then you just keep going. And it'll go like mad. It really will. And we're going to do that this year. Now, I real quick want to tell you, like, our primary way of propagating it this year, what I'm going to do is I'm setting up these little rafts for my garden ponds, and I'm going to propagate it right, sprigs right into basically moist gravel that are in these little floating uh, rafts in the ponds. And, and we'll be able to make, you know, 500, 600,000 sprigs in a month. And we're going to be planting anywhere where it's got a little bit of shade and no irrigation. We'll plant it all through the summer, and it'll survive. What Mint doesn't like is direct beating sun. It's really an edge herb. It, it like Now, you live in the north. I live in Texas. Uh, we call, you know, the summer in Texas is basically hell on earth. I don't want to say it was hot here last summer, but a couple hobbits came in through some rings in my backyard. I mean, it's kind of like that. So direct sun for me and direct sun for you are different things. So you, you're, you're going to be a lot more tolerant of that up there. So just give it a shot like that. But I, I, I'd hold back to like 30 days because why take care of a plant for 90 days, 100 days that you don't really get any benefit by doing that? Put your energy into other things during that time, I guess. Um, You know, if you have some already in some big pots, just maintain them and let them get really big, and you'll have lots of cuttings at that point. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Justin from Georgia. Just wanted to know your thoughts on soaking avocado seed in hot water like you do the black locust. Thank you. I I'm feeling like Nick Ferguson today with all the plant propagation questions, but... Uh, no, here's why. Let's talk about why do we take black locust seed and soak them in hot water. It's called scarification, and that's because the black locust seed has a coating on it, like many leguminous trees, the pea and bean family of trees, um, have this coating. Uh, mimosa uh, silk tree also has this coating. And what it's designed to do is that tree... It, it, it does not want its seed to propagate when it when it drops in in the fall, because if it does before it gets established, it's going to get a hard freeze and kill it. So it puts this this coating on it, and then those seeds don't germinate. They don't take water up, and it relies on producing an abundance of them, tons and tons and tons from a big tree. That a few will either get eaten by an animal that passed through and that will remove the coating or they'll end up in a creek bank and tumble down through the water and basically just like a rock tumbler and end up somewhere that they'll take root or what have you. And so a very small percentage of the seeds actually end up reproducing in the wild, but the tree produces so many that there's always some coming up at the right time of year. Not to mention that seeds like this can sit dormant for 10 years or more, even completely unprotected, until that coating is eroded by some process. So 
even if you think all the silk trees are gone, five years from now, you might see six popping up. Okay? So that's, that's why we do that. Because we don't want to wait. We don't want to buy four metric tons of, of black locust seed and throw it everywhere and hope some of it makes it. We want to know, I'm going to start 100 or 200 black locust seedlings and plant them and do whatever I'm going to do with them. So what we do is we take those seeds, we put them in a jar, we bring water to a boil, we take it off, we let the boil go away so it's just below boiling temperature. We dump it on them, we leave it set there overnight. The next day we take all the swollen seeds out and those will germinate for us. And we might drain the rest of that water off, repeat that, that hot scarification one more time, and by that point any of them that haven't swollen are probably not going to work. Okay, That's why we do that. An avocado doesn't do that. It's a tropical plant. It drops its pit in a, in, a, in a fruit, basically. It's really more of an oily nut, soft flesh nut, but that's what it does. And then if it's not eaten, that fruit pulp mush becomes like this little pile of goop that holds moisture onto the seed, which puts a root into the ground, and a new tree grows. That's it. It's a whole thing. It doesn't have... Uh, a need for scarification. And if you want to start avocado pits, you pull a pit out of an avocado, put four toothpicks in it, and, and set it in a cup of water, and it'll split open and a plant will come right up out of it. I mean, that was a, like a thing that when I was a kid in school, we all did that to see if it would work. Like it was a science, a science experiment, right? We, everybody saved a little milk pint, And you brought it in, and then you, you had to get your mom and dad to buy an avocado, or they liked them or not, and you brought your pit in, and we all had them sitting there, and, you know, see how many of them were going to work or not. And it was a very popular thing in the 70s and 80s that people would do this all the time, and then grow them as a house plant until they'd get too big, because most people live where they don't grow outside. So that, that's all it takes. I mean, avocados are one of the easiest uh, of all trees to grow from their seed, Um And you can just put them in the ground, basically, and a lot of, you know, put, if you just use, you know, if you're going to grow them from avocados you're buying, you, you get them for free, so you put three in one pot, and if one comes up, fine, if multiples come up, you can repot them or, you know, pick the winner, so to speak. Um, but there's no need for scarification um, with avocado seed. Uh, by the way, Jeff Lawton has a new thing out called Avocanos, which is really cool. I'll put a link in the show notes to those as well. Uh, and I have a question in for Jeff about that and applying it to apples. Uh, you want to know more? It'll be coming soon. Let's take another one. I think I got one more and we're done for the day. Hey, Jack. This is Eric from Rhode Island. I was just wondering about alternative defense for those of us who, due to either local, back, local regulation or criminal background, cannot have guns. What do you think? All right. Thank you. Have a good day. It's an extremely complex question because it's so variable about risk and skill set and age and capability and size and mindset and training, etc. But I have to start out with the fact that my view is your primary weapon is your mind. Your secondary weapon is your body. And your third layer weapons are everything else. Okay? So... The, the, the first thing that anybody needs to be thinking about, whether they can own a gun or not, is how to avoid conflict. And if there's going to be conflict, how to be smart about responding to it. That's all mental. That's the mental level strategy. And then we move into 
the, the techniques and tactics of actually employing the weapons that are the body or the extension of the body, which is the weapon. So when, when I, I remember taking martial arts as, as a kid now, I'm talking going all the way back to living in Jacksonville, Florida as a, as a, as a preteen, um, my sensei, I was really big on I wanted to learn how to use nunchucks, right, be like Bruce Lee. And he, and he was a fantastic, fantastic uh, nunchuck guy. He's just amazing. He still is amazing. I, I, I occasionally talk to him still on Facebook over 30 years later, and he's still amazing at what he does. And we always wanted to work with the weapons. And he'd say, you need to get your body right first because the weapon is an extension of your hand. So if you don't have the movements of the art right, the weapon won't respond the way that you want it to. And that always stuck with me. I'm going back to being like 11 years old, and I remember those words that, that Lee Barden, my, you know, my first teacher in martial arts, taught me. And that says, some of you parents out there, that's a good reason to get your kids into martial art. Even if it's not a martial art, I would personally recommend for defense. The mentorship of a good teacher is extremely valuable to our children beyond what you can do as mother and father. And, and there are certain things that go back to a prophet hath no honor in his own country that your kids will listen to other adults who are well-grounded on certain things better than they will you. It's not because you're not good at it. It's not because you don't know. It's because it's too close to home. Okay, It's the same reason if you go take a gun class and you're husband and wife and you're sitting next to each other, the first thing any good instructor is going to do is you go over there and you go and they'll put you as far apart as you can get, right? It's the same reason. So don't take offense to that or anything. So you start out with that mindset. The mind is the primary weapon. The body is the secondary weapon. Everything else is tertiary, okay? Now, so what we're saying is the gun is now a martial art weapon, okay? And that's the truth. There's the old joke, I studied one martial art, it's all I ever need, it's called 9 mil jitsu, right? There's some truth to that, because any fool can use a gun. But the trained martial artist with a gun, and not necessarily Taekwondo, or Aikido, or Sistema, or you know what have you, um, the, the, the trained, the person who's trained with the weapon as a martial artist, even if all of their training has been gun focused, is far more effective than the person without that training. And the martial artist who is trained in a classic martial art, who's had very limited training with a gun, but basically knows how it functions, how it forms, can rack it, can do the basic malfunction clearings, etc. And, but is not anywhere near as, as trained as some, may actually be a much quicker study with the gun. Because they understand what I'm saying right now. So when you take that gun away from that person, and you say, now you can't have that weapon, and the person or the threat may be able to take you out, if the only two weapons you have are your mind and your body, you need a tertiary weapon will immediately scan the room and see a hundred weapons. And it's just the case. Um, things like pepper spray are great because they, they work from a distance. I would point out right now that we have heard from one person a day, and I don't know if this is true in every state, but in Texas apparently you can have a gun in your home. Okay, 
In other states, maybe you can't have a gun in your home if you have a felony conviction in your past, but you maybe have a black powder gun in your home. Okay? Is it a first-rate choice? Absolutely not. But, you know what? I have a, 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 a six-shot revolver in black powder. I don't want to get shot with it. You know? I mean, seriously. I don't want to get shot with it. And you shouldn't... You, it's not likely that you'll need more than that in a home invasion scenario. So, even in many instances where you're not permitted to own the, a gun for certain reasons, you can still own it in the home or there might be a firearm substitute. So that would be another option. In the home, I mean, there's worse things to have around than a baseball bat. Um, they're, they're generally quite affected when applied to the head with significant speed and focus and pressure to cause the head to crush like a blunt skull. Some of you know where that's from. Okay. Um, but the, the problem with like saying, well, get this or get that leads to the belief that it's the tool that's actually important. Um, I could tell you get a knife. A knife without training isn't much use. If you're going to use the knife in a conflict, now, any scumbag can basically stab somebody, cut somebody, shank somebody with a prison yard rush. Okay, that is different than having someone come at you and you're in a defensive mode with a knife. This requires a significant amount of training. And in many instances, if you're well trained with a knife, it's a far more lethal weapon than a gun. And here's why. If you're trying to harm me and I shoot you and you don't have a weapon, you're just bigger and stronger than me, if I shoot you, unless you've already got my your hands on me, unless you're keyed up on dope or something like that, in general, even if it doesn't put you down, even if it doesn't fully incapacitate you, it gets your freaking attention and it hurts and you stop. Not every time, but most times. When a person's keyed up and attacking you, if you're using a knife on them, they're all, by their very nature, they're already close enough to you. Okay, to have their hands on you, so you have to incapacitate to stop. In many instances, when that person's keyed up, they mean to do violence, and you slice them, they don't know it. So now they're bleeding, they're severely wounded. If not given medical attention, they may be already morally wounded, but yet the attack will continue unless you do something to end it. And that often with using an edged weapon for defense has a lot more to do with instead of being lethal with the weapon, being able to inflict immobilizing pain with the weapon. This takes a lot of training. It opens up a whole can of worms legally. Generally, if you're attacked by somebody and you feel you need to shoot them and the laws of your state are not insane, it, it, I'm not saying there's no possible legal action, but generally speaking, the officers that show up Treat it like what it looks like. This guy was attacked, he used a gun. When the officers arrive and you've sliced somebody open a few times, they're less likely to just, from the beginning of the investigation, because there's going to be an investigation, okay? No matter what, if the guy was armed to the teeth with two Uzis, walking down the street and, and shooting at people at random, tried to shoot you, you pull your gun and pop him in the head, and no one thinks for a second it wasn't a good shoot, there's still an investigation that includes you. Okay? So there's going to be an investigation. The direction that investigation takes from the beginning 
is often quite important to where it ends up. It shouldn't be, but human nature kicks in and it is. If all the officers responding initially kind of have this feeling that this was justified and a higher level investigator like a detective shows up and that goes from there and then it has to be, you know, reviewed by basically, you know, prosecution, is there anything to be prosecuted here, whatever. And everybody that kind of saw it in the beginning felt a certain way, it's less likely to, to escalate into a prosecution. And there's a risk with knives as a defense for that. So that's so it, it's it's so very complex. Which is why I like blunt instruments that aren't weapons in this instance more. Because if you crack somebody in the face, I'm sitting here looking at a soup can, it gets their attention. Or a padlock, right? On a chain. Right? And then it's, I didn't see, and it's understanding how to, you know, if there, if there ends up being serious injury, police show up, understanding, I, I don't carry this for defense. I carry this to lock up my suitcase at the airport or whatever. Okay? It's a lot easier to explain. And I'll, I'll tell you a true story of something like this. My buddy Tyler, and boy, if you want to pick the wrong freaking truck to try to jack somebody out of, it's this guy's truck. For those of you in the MSB, there's a video I did where I hit this guy in the stomach with a systema strike. He towers over me by about a freaking foot and a quarter, right? He's like 285 pounds. He played. A, he was a lineman uh, for Texas University. And uh, I, he was a bartender at the, the bar I used to go to. He gets in his truck, summer, windows down, you know, and as soon as he gets in his truck, some guy reaches through his window and tries to pull him out. He's like, again, what are you doing with the, you know, pick your targets, bad guys, and tries to pull him out of his car and wants to jack his truck. Well, he keeps one of those extendable batons uh, between his seat and the console. He reaches in there, pulls out this baton, grabs the guy by the back of the head, and just pummels his face with it. Just He ended up fracturing him like, the bone under the eye when they finally found a guy like a week later they, they were able to tie this guy back to this attempted uh, robbery and uh, he, once he beat him a few times he just pushed him out of the truck and the guy caught up holding his face and ran away lucky for this guy this guy used this guy Tyler usually carries a gun he didn't happen to have a gun on him he probably would have shot him which would have been okay understand that would have been okay That would have been okay. Even if the guys run away, Tyler gets his cell phone out, dials 911, gives this report, and basically doesn't give all the details. Just said I was somebody just attempted to rob me. I, I fought them off. They ran away. Here's where I'm at. They sent an officer out to do an investigation, which includes the victim here. Okay, and Tyler gives them the whole account that I basically just give you. And the officer goes, "Okay, you're going to say that again, and you're going to say." You hit him with your fist because you're not supposed to have that for a weapon. And Tyler's like, okay, I hit him with my fist. And fortunately, if anybody ever doubted that, you look at Tyler and go, hey, that can happen from being hit with his fist. If he had pulled a tie, uh, a, 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 a tire iron out from under his seat and smacked the guy in the face with it and laid him out on the ground with it, it would have been okay because it was just what was available. You have to think about legalities beyond I can't own a gun when you start thinking about using something else as a self-defense tool or a self-defense weapon. That's why it starts with the mind and the body. Okay? And then everything's a weapon. 
I look around my office and I see literally 20 things right now that I could use as a weapon effectively. Not because I'm some badass or something like that. Simply because I think that way. Simply because I know not just, oh, that will work as a weapon, but I actually know what part of the body it will be most effective on, and I can identify the threat and the level of response necessary in choosing what I'm going to utilize on the fly as a weapon. Um, Kubatons are great tools to carry on a keychain. Most places, they're legal. But without a little bit of training, they're kind of useless. You know? But you ball your keys up in your hand and start raking somebody's eyeballs with them, that works. If you come after me, and I think you are going to hurt me, and I don't think I'm physically capable of resisting you, if you leave your face open, I'm going to put two thumbs in your eyes and I'm going to push your eyes to the back of your skull. And you're done. You're done right there. You're not doing anything else. It's over. And we need, if we're going to be realistic about protecting ourselves from actual physical harm, this is not what you do with a guy that you're pissed off with you're going to take it out to the parking lot and settle things with. Okay, You shouldn't be doing that anyway. That's kid stuff. right? This is, if, if some guy comes at you, especially you know, like you women, you should know this. You put two thumbs in the eyeballs, and I don't mean just softly. I mean until you feel the eyes gush, you're, they're, they're done. And, and I can't go much further. I'm like 15 minutes into this answer. But it's a mentality. It's not a thing. There's a ton of stuff that will work. You know, my wife, God bless her, when she was living with just her and Matthew before she met me and was afraid somebody would break in the house and wasn't comfortable with a gun yet, took a sock and, and had about an 8-inch piece of like 1-inch chain, like 8 links of 1-inch chain, put it in a sock, tied a knot in it, put that sock in another sock and tied a knot in it, and she slept with that next to her bed. I guarantee you if somebody would have broken that house and went over that bed and got hit in the head with that thing, they were done. They were flipping done. I mean, the, the, the reality of that sock and the snap to that sock was, was unbelievable. Yet there's places where carrying a club is illegal. Well, a tire billy's not a club. Okay? A tire billy is for checking the pressure of your tires. And you drive a truck and it's not a dually, and, and, and if somebody ever asks you, I tow trailers. Now, if you have a Volkswagen, you got to think differently, right? But you got a pickup truck with a pinnel hitch on it, and you got a tire billy under the seat, what's that for? Well, officer, I tow trailers at times just to check my tire pressure. Okay, why'd you hit him in the head when he attacked me? It was there. Same thing with things like wasp spray. There's a whole mythology around wasp spray, and I'll, I'll finish here. But the police tell people to keep wasp spray for defense at their home over uh, mace or pepper spray because it's more effective. There's a little thing on the wasp spray. This is a violation of federal law to use this product in, in a manner inconsistent with its la labeling. Okay, So if, if you actually had somebody try to break in your door and you keep a can of wasp spray there and you spray the guy in the face with it and the... The, the, now that this guy is a, is a criminal, he's got an attorney and wants to turn the thing back around on you or even maybe a litigation situation where, because let's say that your responding officers have a brain and go, yeah, we don't care that you, you use it for a weapon or keep it for that reason. Or they say, 
just like with Tyler, you're going to tell me that again. And you're going to say it just happened to be there. Even if that's the case, if you've made a statement like that, there's any way to trace it back. If the guy heard it while they're picking him up off the ground, while he's crying like a baby, right? It is a potential if he has long-term optic injury or even claims to, he could get an attorney that said, you did this and this was wrong. And in our stupid society, he might win. But if you just say, uh, we have wasps around here a lot, so I had this stuff sitting here, and he tried to get in the door, so I just grabbed it and sprayed him with it, that's okay. That's how crazy things are. I think if you try to break in my home or harm me, whatever happens to you is your problem. But that's not how our society works. So it has to come from that full mental focus. With that, I'm going to wrap up today. As usual, I'm picked a different song to sign off with today. Today's song is an old, old one from the Eagles. It's been redone many, many times. I'm going to play the original from the Eagles. It is Desperado. And I think Desperado is is seen as a song that's one or two things by people that hear it, especially people that haven't heard it a lot, like people that are younger and, and not part of that music scene from the 70s. Um, it's either seen as like actually this cowboy thing and this guy out on the range and he won't you know find love, or it's just purely like a love thing, like this independent guy that just can't accept love and, and therefore kind of stays alone. Um, I think most good music and most well-written music is actually bigger than its bass line. I think this song actually applies to all of us. Because all of us have times where we would be better off working with someone rather than against them. Uh, all of us have times where we would be better off asking for help rather than trying to do things completely on our own. Most of us go through periods of time where we feel like we don't need anybody else. And sometimes that actually affects our ability to have good relationships, whether they're friendly relationships or romantic relationships. All of us get to points in our life where we try to be an island or isolate ourselves and try to be that desperado that can just make it on their own. And there's times where that's actually good if it's for a time. When I got out of the Army and I spent three months on the Appalachian Trail and spent almost all my time completely alone, I needed that then. But even then, I knew I was doing that so that I could be with other people again. And I, I think that that is the place for doing that. But without the, the vision forward, loneliness gets awful lonely really quick. And we can see this throughout our communities, too. We now live in a place where maybe you, you talk to your, your family every day, your immediate family, your extended family, and people at work, but we're like these little desperado houses, right? The, you go to these, these beautiful neighborhoods with these beautiful houses that people are spending a fortune for. They stopped even putting sidewalks in neighborhoods around here now. No one walks up and down the street. You don't see any kids playing. If anybody's in their back, everybody's, everybody's outside, they're in their backyard, never in their front yard. They all have privacy fences and nobody talks to each other. You know, we're better off together than apart. I, I believe the separation of community is by design because it's a lot easier to control people if you can control 300 million individuals instead of multiple strong, cohesive units, be they family, community, whatever. So that's my take on this old classic Eagles song. Listen to it, enjoy it, and I'll be back tomorrow with the big finale of the week, The Expert Council Show. Desperado Why don't you come to your senses You've been out riding fences 